Good evening, everyone. You're in the right place at the right time. This is Coast to Coast AM, blasting out of the Mojave Desert like a Scirocco, blazing across the land, slamming into your radio like a supercharged nanoparticle of unobtainium. Greetings from the boldest, bawdiest, most outrageous city in the world, the planetary capital of sun, fun, sin, sex, and secrets, my not-so-humble hometown, Las Vegas, Nevada. My name is George Knapp, your occasional host, designated driver of the airwaves, and moderator of tonight's upcoming cacophonous cavalcade of conversation. What's shaking out there? Monsoon season has arrived here in the southwest, so we had a blazing hot temperatures around 113, I think, in Las Vegas for most of the day. And then in the late afternoon, we get warnings that severe thunderstorms are on the way. Uh, Those summer storms in the desert are a sight to behold. Just kaboom, downpours and flooding and wind and lightning. The the sky really put on quite a show earlier this evening across much of the valley and out over the lake. Uh, But here in the coast-to-coast bunker, we were hunkered down with the cats preparing for tonight's stellar guests and compelling topics. Pretty interesting mix tonight, and I'm confident you're going to like these guests and subjects. In the first half, a big-time thief. He ranks among the most prolific, certainly one of the most brazen and busiest art thieves in history. It's not going to be like one of those heist movies where a a team of clever thieves pulls off some ridiculously complex caper. This guy didn't do a lot of planning, sometimes none at all. He didn't have any high-tech gear or super cool tools, no team of brilliant con artists to work with him. Basically, if he saw it and wanted it, he stole it. Hundreds of priceless, irreplaceable items pilfered from some of the leading museums in the world, and he didn't sell the stuff to support an extravagant lifestyle. In fact, he didn't steal it, or sell it at all. He mostly stole art because he liked it and wanted to look at it. The amazing story has a lot of twists and turns, especially in the hands of an immensely talented writer, Michael Finkel, who was my guest on this show six years ago with his previous work. Some of our listeners might remember it, A Stranger in the Woods, about a guy who became what some call the last hermit. A fascinating story, and so is this latest work called The Art Thief. Michael joins us momentarily. In the second half, we dig into medical research, the labs that are trying to find cures for diseases and how they go about it. Since 1930, they went about it by cutting up animals, tens of thousands of them every year. Dogs, cats, rabbits, rats, monkeys, many other species are subjected to unimaginable experiments, surgeries, poisons, drugs, Uh, Back in December, a law was passed, signed by the president, which removed a requirement for animal testing. It was a requirement for all those decades. It was a huge victory for animal welfare groups, but the testing continues, and the benefits are pretty meager, especially in light of the cost. So what can be done? Where are things headed? How can you help? We have two guests, longtime professionals, Dr. Zahir Nawali and Tamara Drake. They work with the Center for a Humane Economy, And we'll bring us up to date. It won't be all doom and gloom either. We'll talk about the unique friendship, for example, between humans and canines, how the two species evolved and have been pals and partners for, oh, 33 years, 1,000 years or so. That's coming up two hours from now in the second half. Last weekend, if you tuned in, Saturday night, we had a trio of guests who talked about the ongoing roundups of wild horses from public lands here in the West. I reported then about a roundup that had just begun here in Nevada, and that one first day, they had a pretty brutal incident. A stunningly beautiful stallion was one of the horses that was basically terrorized by these helicopters, paid for by you through the BLM. This horse was 
chased and captured, tried to get away, broke his back, still ran for miles in obvious pain and distress until they caught up to him and shot him. That was all on video. And even though BLM tries to keep witnesses far away from these roundups, people still get some shots of it. And this week, since that incident last weekend, 14 more Mustangs died in that same roundup. Broken legs, broken necks, shot by Wranglers. This roundup continues, and apparently there is nothing anyone can do about it because the BLM seems immune to any public pressure. In Washington, a big week on tap for the UAP topic. As mentioned last Sunday, a House National Security Subcommittee will hold a hearing into the subject, and unlike those two other namby-pamby presentations by the keepers of the secrets earlier this one will this time we'll hear from some witnesses, including two highly respected military aviators, David Fravor and Ryan Graves, also a career intelligence officer, David Grush, who dropped some bombshells earlier this year. That happens Wednesday. Our webmaster Ryan Stacy and I have put together our usual assortment of items and oddities culled from various news media, including a preview of what's coming up in that hearing. We call it Naps News. Also there a story about Harvard astronomer Dr. Abby Loeb and his search for pieces of an interstellar visitor. There's an intriguing story about the state of the electric grid. Pretty alarming when you consider how shaky it is and what might happen if or when it goes down on a mass scale. Also a mind-twisting tale about psychoanalyst Carl Jung, some inner space encounters that he reportedly had. Of those stories and more in Naps News, and while you're on the website, Check out how to become a Coast Insider. The cost is about 15 cents a day. If you subscribe for a year, it gives you access to a huge archive of programs and interviews, including the Art Bell Vault. You can listen anytime you want, as often as you want. It's a good deal. Uh, So, too, is a subscription to Beyond Belief. That's George Norrie's television program in which George interviews fascinating guests on scintillating topics similar to what he does so well here on the radio. And with that, let's assume the position. Bring in the dog and the cat and the family rabbit. Put on a pot of joe. Slide your bod into those summertime jammies and your toes into your best faux bunny slippers. Plop yourself down in a comfy spot. Turn down the lights and turn up the radio because we're about ready to rumble. In a moment, The Art Thief with Michael Finkel. I'm George Knapp and this is Coast to Coast AM. Welcome back. For a period of about six years, museums and art collections across Europe were targeted by a thief who seemingly defied stereotypes and expectations. He brazenly stole hundreds of art objects, paintings and sculptures and historical objects that were really irreplaceable, and it's hard to even estimate in terms of monetary value what they were worth. By some estimates, this guy, working only with his girlfriend, who mostly served as a lookout, stole more than two billion dollars, billion dollars worth of art. The reason why is a real puzzler, too. It it defies everything we think we know about art thieves. The story is told in a new book by acclaimed writer Michael Finkel, whose uh, work has been featured in Rolling Stone, Esquire, Vanity Fair, The Atlantic, and many others. Michael, welcome back to Coast to Coast. Thank you, George. I'm thrilled to be here with you and the uh, fellow night owls. Uh, you know, until I read your bio in prepping for the show, I didn't realize that Stranger in the Woods had been made into a movie. I- I'll have to look for it. James Franco, Jonah Hill. Was it good? Was it up to your expectations? So that movie was made out of my first book, which was called True Story, which is oh. even you know another another totally strange uh, story. That's about a murderer. This is also you know it's called True Story and it's true. A murderer who killed four people and then on the run in Mexico told everyone that his name was 
Michael Finkel and that's my name and that he was a reporter and I was a reporter. So, uh, yeah, so that's what that's what became movie. Stay tuned for a movie about the hermit, but that's still uh, churning its way through the system, which, of course, is now all shut down because of the strikes. Yeah, sure. Well, awesome. Um, uh, congratulations on that. The, the Art Thief. Wow, it's really good. I, I was searching for adjectives with which to describe this guy. <laughs> uh, most successful art thief. I'm not sure that's right. One of the most prolific. That's certainly Certainly among the most brazen, maybe the weirdest. What's your go-to descriptor for the guy? I mean, so Stefan Breiweiser, the name of the art thief, I kind of, I guess the word that jumped into my mind is outlier. He's an outlier in almost every way. Museums, public museums, have been open for about 300 years. They started opening in the 1700s. And ever since museums opened, people have been stealing from them. And I spent pretty much the entire pandemic reading about art thieves. I wanted to see who else had stolen what. And the second, the second most prolific art thief that I can find, and this doesn't count the Nazis or wartime, just individual thieves or a little gang of thieves, it stole from 19, that's one nine different museum. But Stefan Breitweiser, who I called the outlier of all outliers, uh, stole from more than 200 museums and churches and galleries. So to, there's not really even a second place. Prolific sounds good. I like outlier. Uh, you do a lot of great uh, history of art thievery uh, that, that really rounds this book out. You've done some great research. Uh, there's one of the stories, I'm trying to remember where it is, it's some horse objects. Uh, Stefan, your guy, makes the point that art is is basically meant to be stolen. It's always been stolen. And you give some examples of it. There was some horses that were They go back to like A.D. 500, and then they were stolen by all kinds of major historical figures. Can you recall the details on that? Of course. Uh, Yeah, I even mentioned that uh, people have been stealing from museums since they've opened. But really, people have been stealing art forever. I mean, literally the earliest, some of the earliest written things on papyrus and things like that talk about people stealing from, you know, Egyptian graves. So you're talking about the horses of St. Mark's, which are four near-life-size horses made out of bronze. They're absolutely beautiful. They were believed to be made in Greece in the uh, 4th century B.C. That's 2,500 years ago, 2,450 years ago. But they were stolen by Nero, you know, around the year zero, and then they were brought to Rome from Greece, and then they were stolen again uh, by Constantine the Great, who's from uh, Constantinople, now Turkey. He put them, uh, he stole them and put them above his uh, chariot racing, racing stadium for 900 years. But then in the Fourth Crusade of two of the year 1200, so we're talking, we're still 800 years ago, 1,000 years ago, uh, they were stolen by uh, the Crusaders and put in Venice. And then they lived there for six centuries, and then Napoleon took them during his Italian campaign of 1797, and he, he put them in Paris. And then the British troops following the Battle of Waterloo, they stole them. Basically, these, four, these horses have been just stolen for 2,500 years. And it's funny because after the British troops stole them for the like fifth time, they decided, you know what, they decided they're going to return them to where they belong and they were made in Greece, and then they spent time in Rome, and they could have been anywhere, and they decided to put them in Venice, which is really the fourth, third, or fourth <laughs> people to steal them. So, you know, Breitweiser, whether or not I agree with them, does make a large point that art is pretty much made to be enjoyed and made to be stolen, according to him. You also make the point, I don't know if you make it or he made it, I'm trying to remember where it is in the book, but that, uh, you know, some of the world's great museums uh, were made up of 
material, articles, items, pieces of art that were stolen. The first public museum ever to open was the British Museum in London. And the most famous items in the British Museum right now today, I think the most famous is probably the Rosetta Stone, which was stolen from Egypt. There's also pieces of the Parthenon, very famous, um, stolen from Greece. And there's also the Benin bronzes stolen from West Africa. And nobody even pretends that they're not stolen, but I don't think the museum is about to give back their most famous works. But uh, again, sort of, we can talk about this, but it underlines the point, you know, the, the art thief I wrote about was the master of making up excuses. And one of his excuses was, you know, everybody's a thief in the art world. Why not me? Uh, did you get to speak to him for the book? I can't tell. I mean, you do such great research and in such great detail that I, I couldn't tell. I know he's done some interviews over the, the years uh, and he wrote a book, but I couldn't tell if you got to sit down with him or not. So the artist's name is Stefan Breitweiser. He is from northeastern France and he had never spoke. He's, he was born in 1971, so he's only 52 years old now. This is not some ancient history. Uh, he had never spoken before with an American journalist and he had barely spoken with any journalists over the past decade plus. Uh, but I speak French with a terrible accent. But it took me 11 – God, I'm the most inefficient person ever – 11 years of work uh, to complete this book, including writing letters back and forth to the art thief for four years before he finally agreed to meet with me. And even when he agreed to meet me, it was just for lunch. I wasn't allowed to bring a pen or even a recorder, which I usually bring a digital recorder. But he met me for lunch, and I guess uh, he was sort of testing me out to see if he liked me. I guess he found my – bad French accent to be at least tolerable or perhaps even amusing. And then he said he would sit for interviews. And I interviewed him for more than 40 hours. And I also visited museums with him. And I'm telling you, George, I can't think of an odder experience than walking through a museum with the, pretty much the world's greatest art thief. He's banned from most European museums, by the way, so he had to wear a light disguise. And I kept following him around thinking, what am I going to do? If he snags something. <laughs> exactly. Like, that was playing throughout my mind pretty much the entire time I visited museums with him. Well, you had good reason to, and we'll get into those details. Uh, talk to me about his uh, upbringing, because, I mean, the guy comes across as a bit spoiled. I mean, he had some rough patches here or there, but he was just taken care of and supported for much of his life by family, by government. He worked a few jobs here and there, but mainly he had a pretty easy road of it because somebody always stepped to the, up to the plate and helped them. So tell us about his upbringing and, and what shaped his really eccentric views about art and theft. Yeah, and I don't disagree with you that he seems a little spoiled. Uh, you know, this is a work of nonfiction. I just want to stress that to everyone listening. This is not based on a true story. This is not kind of a true story, but this is 100% a true story, thoroughly fact-checked. So Stefan Breitweiser, the art thief, he grew up in a fairly wealthy family in the Alsace region, northeastern France, sort of where Switzerland, Germany, and France meet each other. And his father had fantastic collections of oil paintings, um, ivory sculptures, antique weaponry. And when Stefan Breitweiser was a teenager, his parents had a really terrible divorce. And his father, who had inherited all of his art collection, left the house, took all of his stuff with him, and Stefan Breitweiser uh, decided that he was cutting off all contact with his father and remaining with his mother. And he said that his initial uh, motivation was to replace some of the works that his father had taken from him. And he tried to buy them at auction, but as we all know, artworks are 
not cheap, to say the least. He didn't have the millions of dollars. He didn't even have very much money following the divorce. And so illogically, but yet undeniably, he started stealing. And the first things uh, he started stealing, his father left, he meets a girl, and together the two of them form this crazy, unstoppable, historically unprecedented team. The first few things he steals are things that his father used to own, like antique weapons, except Brightweiser told me that they were much, the things he stole were much, much better than his father owned. And it didn't take very long before Brightweiser's illegal collection surpassed anything his father owned. And that became a goal, too, is, you know, at first it was to replace them, and then it was to exceed what his father had ever had, right? And then I think obsession just completely took over both the thrill of the heist, which I'm sure we'll get into, and then the even greater thrill of the acquisition and hanging a new multi-million dollar work of art in his bedroom on, on the wall. You mentioned at a couple points in the book how he stands out from other art thieves and that, uh, for the most part, other art thieves do not appreciate or love art as he did. And he clearly loves it and knows a lot about it, right? So one of the most interesting things that Brightweiser said to me, he said to me, I hate being called an art thief, which I thought was funny because he fully admitted every crime to me, all 201 plus crimes, the statute of limitations had been, had expired. And so he was able to speak freely to me. And again, uh, I'm the first American that he spoke with. So why did he hate being called an art thief? So when you think of an art thief, you might think of one of two things. You might think of something like Ocean's Eleven or the Thomas Crown Affair. Those are fictitious. Those are the movies or novels. Those are where the gentleman art thieves are, the real art thieves. If I said think about a real art crime, I bet many of your listeners might think of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston, which was robbed in 1990 by two men. And those men broke in at night, attacked the night guards, bound their faces with duct tape, handcuffed them to pipes in the basement. Already Brightweiser hates this. He, was, he stole nonviolently. But then these guys from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum did something worse. They marched up to the most magnificent painting in the museum, a Rembrandt seascape from the 1600s, and one of the guys stuck a knife in the canvas and ripped it with a knife, the blade going all the way around the outside of the canvas, ripped it right out, basically destroyed the painting. Hated art. Most art thieves just want money. They hate art. And so I asked Breitweiser, who never wanted to harm a painting, never would stick a knife in a painting, never would use violence. We'll get into his method soon, I'm sure. I said to him, so if you don't want to be called an art thief, what do you want to be called? And he told me, straight-faced, in French translation was, he said, I want to be called a collector with an unorthodox acquisition style. <laughs> uh, I don't know if it's intentionally humorous, if the guy has a I sense know. of humor. Or... <laughs> what do you think? I mean, I love, feeling, I love spending time with people that are clearly outside of any normal range. And, you know, yes, you have to sort of shake your head and laugh at the same time when someone so brazen tells you that they just want to be called a collector with a strange acquisition style. I love that. But I mean, he, he does have a, a knowledge of and appreciation for good stuff, though. He had good taste. So I told you it spent me, I spent 11 years working on this, and our tr level of trust built up so much that Stefan Breitweiser, the art thief, eventually gave me signed, written permission to see his psychological reports. And I was able to see five different psychologists' analysis of him. And I think you earlier in the, just, just a few minutes ago, called him like a brat or, you know, uh, someone who really, 
just yeah. just has damaged you know the, the, our public trust and, and all the psychologists really were harsh on Breitweiser, but all five of them said the same thing, which I found fascinating and true, which is that he really loved <laughs> the works of art that he stole. He was an esthete, someone who was captivated by their beauty. And so I think no matter how harsh we are on him, I think there is that fact. Uh, we'll uh, we'll take a break here now, talking with Michael Finkel uh, about The Art Thief We're talking with Michael Finkel, author of The Art Thief, A True Story of Love, Crime, and a Dangerous Obsession, an absolutely fascinating and entertaining read. Uh, It seems like somebody should have made this up, but it is absolutely true. In a moment, we're going to get into how he went about it, the methods he used to steal $2 billion worth of art. We'll be right back. Michael Finkel, I, I want to come back to the various diagnoses that were made of this guy. But let's first jump into what he did and how he did it. Uh, you know, you you make the point in the book about the great art thefts of all time and how meticulous planning is. And there's weeks of surveillance, and these guys go into looking, studying the buildings, the structures, the engineering, um, how to get in and out. Uh, they, they spend all this time and, and figure out the patterns of the security guys and how to get around the systems. This guy did none of that. I mean, you know, some of the great thefts of all time are really complicated heists. Uh, this guy didn't do it, right? So Stefan Breitweiser, the protagonist of The Art Thief, was sort of a master of a couple of things. Spontaneity, sort of psychological acumen, meaning he could sort of tell how well you were paying attention and sort of human psychology. Now, he had three things. Before we get into specifically how he stole, I want, I want you to know three things. First of all, his girlfriend, whom he fell in love with, and she was in love with him, you know, despite yeah. the fact that they had a most unhealthy relationship. There's a love story in the middle here. He had a partner, an accomplice, that he could completely trust, and she served as lookout, which I think it underestimates her role. She was sort of like the magician's assistant, and often a lot of times a magician does a trick. It's really the assistant who is diverting your attention. And so she had, a, she had a minor but essential role in the crime. Number two, this is a guy who worked as a security guard for several months in a museum and sort of understood exactly how much or how little a security guard in a museum really pays attention to the art on the wall. He told me in a matter of weeks, all the art sort of fades into the background like wallpaper, and you really don't notice it. And the third thing I mentioned earlier, the Isabella Stewart Gardner criminals who stuck a knife in the painting. Well, the reason why they stuck a knife in it is that a painting with a frame on it is just too big to steal. Breitweiser actually worked as a framer in a frame shop for months, learning how to put on frames. But really, he told me, learning how to take them off. <laughs> so those was, that was his background. Let's talk about the girlfriend a little bit. She's a tough customer. That's how she comes across to me. I mean, you know, the, the art thief. Stefan, he fesses up eventually, and his mom even fesses up. We'll get into that. But the the girlfriend, she hangs tough for a pretty long time, and is and to this day, I guess, is is pretty difficult to get a hold of. So yeah, there's so many tentacles to this story. But uh, yes, once you get to 200 plus thefts, 300 works of art, they can sound. It's not repetitive. Like it's just one act after another act after another illegal act. But there's also a love story right down the middle of this, and Breitweiser's girlfriend was named, is named Anne Catherine Kleinklaus, and they met each other when they were 19 years old. And as I mentioned before, despite all the psychologists saying that this was an extremely 
unhealthy relationship. They did say that there was true, deep, cra- and crazy love between them. And anybody who's fallen in love knows that love can make you do crazy things. And Catherine never had a criminal record before meeting Brightweiser, but there was just somehow the chemistry or alchemy between the two of them just formed this unstoppable team. And you're right. She continued to be sort of, you know, I don't want to give away too much of the ending, but let's just say in the end, the master thief is sort of, who's really the master thief? Uh She turns out to be like an amazing liar. Everybody does get caught in the end, like any good Icarus story. You fly too close to the sun, you're going to crash to earth. And they eventually did after hundreds of thefts. But she continues to elude the authorities and manipulate her boyfriend into defending her in court. And and Catherine Kleinklaus, despite being part of 200 thefts, like you said, worth $2 billion, amazingly, shockingly, and almost geniusly, to make up a word, spent just one night in jail. And she has never talked to a journalist before, including to me, because she would be put in a terrible position if she actually did talk to a journalist. She's quite intelligent. She would either have to lie to the journalist or admit to things that could expose her to jail time. So she's smartly stayed, stepped aside, but I managed to speak to many people who knew Anne Catherine Kleinklaus also to get her uh, police interrogations and some psychology reports, which helped write, uh, helped me write as complete a picture of Anne Catherine as possible. And of course, her boyfriend, uh, Stefan Breitweiser spoke about her uh, at huge length. So the two of them fall madly in love. At the time, he's <laughs> living uh, in a house his mom owns. He lives there basically rent-free uh, upstairs. They have their own little world up there, and they start stealing things. And um, tell us the, the fr- about the first one and how he drags her along. Right. So you did mention the mom, and we'll put her aside for a moment. But basically, after the divorce, the mom buys a tiny house in uh, the suburbs of a French city, and she lives on the ground floor, and there's this narrow flight of stairs that leads up to this two-room attic-like apartment. And in the middle of these two rooms is a beautiful four-poster bed. That's for Stefan Breitweiser and Anne Catherine Sleep. And then at the height of its glory, I was able to see home videos. I mean, I will try to describe it to your listeners, but it is like it's like the inside of a treasure chest. Like you said, there was... It was like $2 billion worth of art hung all over the walls, put in, put in the closet, under the bed, on the nightstand, dresser. Every flat surface was covered with spectacular and stolen uh, works of art. The first things that Breitweiser and Anne Catherine took, as I mentioned uh, earlier, were just things that, were, that his father had so, uh, similar to what his father had owned. The very first thing was a pistol from the 1700s that they stole from a small museum. Many of the thefts that were done, but not all of them, uh, by Stefan Breitweiser and his girlfriend were in small regional museums, which have, especially in Europe, some extraordinary valuable works, but also, this is key, not great security. And some people might say that Breitweiser talked his girlfriend into joining him. I find that to be, I really think that they were sort of in it, together, it's possible that the girlfriend who didn't love the work as much as Breitweiser wanted to sort of please her boyfriend, but she also told many of her friends that she also loved this feeling of being part of something like Bonnie and Clyde. That was sort of like what she had in mind, at least at first, before it all went wrong. 
And and did uh, did Stefan have a plan to steal that uh, that pistol when he went to this museum, or had he been thinking about it and didn't tell her, or did he let her know that he was uh, considering grabbing it? Right. So we yeah. I mean, when you're thinking about a professional art thief, I bet you know, like this is not like the movies where someone's planning and you know, you know, get a cut through a skylight or you know, avoid a, you know, throw smoke bombs. Spontaneity really was the name of the game here. Breitweiser was walking through this museum with his girlfriend. They loved to go to museums together. This was not the first one they had been to. And he sees this pistol. And he had a, there's a French expression. I won't use very much French, but he, he called it a coup de corps, which means a hit to the heart, something that just crushed his heart. And he looks at this pistol, and he says, man, this would be the greatest F you to my father if I owned something like this. And according to his version of the story and the police version, uh, it was anne Catherine who said, well, why don't you just take it? Now, Something in a display box, if you don't mind me talking about this for a minute, because this is very important. When you're thinking of a, you know, picture like a display case in a museum. Usually it's a cubic sort of thing or a flat cube, you know, uh, glass or plexiglass. And there's a sliding panel usually in the side. And these panels are usually locked with a very uh, advanced lock that would be quite difficult to pick. Well, Breitweiser, who... Again, able to spontaneously figure out things, uh, realize that you don't have to actually pick a lock. All you need is a tiny Swiss Army knife in your pocket. Unfold the sharpest blade in your Swiss Army knife. Make sure there's not a camera on you or other tourists or even guards paying attention. They can actually be in the same room. We'll talk about this. And you take out your knife and slice along where the panels of this display case are usually sealed with silicon glue. You can imagine it. And if you just cut vertically and horizontally at one corner, all the panels will loosen just enough for you to allow yourself to sneak your hand through, grab the object of your desire, and Breitweiser usually hid what he stole if it was a sculpture in the, in the waistband of his pants, at the small of his back, and if it was a cold day, he would wear a large jacket, and if it was a warm day, he would wear a a roomy shirt, and he would just cover it over. There would be a lump there, but as I told you, he worked as a security guard. He knows that security guards are just not noticing things like a lump at your back and walk out, never run. He would walk out the museum right out the front door, and that's how he would steal things. And in that first one, if I'm remembering the, the incident correctly, uh, you know, they're talk. he's telling her, hey, I'm, I might just steal this, and she goes, go for it, basically, or, you know, get it, Right. That was, you know, exactly. And he said that he made a bunch of mistakes that first crime. The number one mistake is that he grabbed it and they both panicked and ran out of the museum. And he thought he, when he was thinking about things, he actually thought that the police were going to come knocking on his uh, attic door any minute to, to collect the gun. He didn't know whether he'd been filmed, whether the uh, people at the front desk were like, well, those two people ran out, whether he'd be followed. And so he sort of he was shocked when police never came because it turns out that their faces weren't noticed. And that uh, the crime itself was not spotted for a couple of hours. They were able to get away. Um, But he sort of, after that first thrill, he said there was the thrill of the crime. And then the thrill, he said, of actually having this valuable piece in his crappy bedroom, basically. And it sort of enlivened, like the whole attic suddenly seemed to go from something very drab to something glowing. And he thought, wow, I'd like to do this again. But maybe this time we'll make a few small modifications so we uh, could decrease our chances of getting caught. You, you, He told you about a physical sensation that he has when he sees a piece of art that he just has to possess. Uh, and and uh, 
the diagnosis we can talk about later, but uh, how did he describe it to you? What what happens to him? I mean, I think, listen, I think everybody, when I say, if I say to everybody listening, you know, think of the most beautiful thing you can, I think we would all think of something maybe different, but I think we all would come up with something, whether it's like sunset over the mountains or the northern lights or a lover, something. Well, Breitweiser found certain works of art, mostly late Renaissance, which is the 16th and 17th century. He found these works of art to be tremendously attractive to him. It was his girlfriend and Renaissance art that he thought was the most beautiful things in the world. And he described it as sort of an electric shock that sort of went through him when, you know, he would go through a museum and see 99 pieces that weren't that interesting to him. But when he saw that one that just fulfilled his aesthetic desire, gave him the coup de corps, the hit of the heart, he said it was like an electric current was running through him. And now he wouldn't always be able to steal these pieces because sometimes they were too well guarded or there was a camera or it was too big, but... The pieces that he loved, that he could steal, he would, and he would never steal a piece that he didn't love. I imagine there's got to be a sexual component to it, too, the way he's describing the energy that, that hit both of them. Well, I'm sort of glad, George, <laughs> that you brought that up. There was a reason that there was a four-poster bed in the room, and there was something significant to the fact that it was a two-person team, not just man and woman, but boyfriend and girlfriend, and he freely admitted that the thrill of stealing something and putting it in his bedroom also led to some very romantic evenings. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we probably don't need to get into tomorrow. details on that, but yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> sorry, so how long did they wait after that first one, waiting for the cops to knock on the door? How long did they wait before they decided to give it another try? Right, so the first between the first and second crimes for them, where they waited a huge amount of time, which was nine months. And nine months later, he steals another weapon that sort of reminded him of something his father owned, except he told me much, much more valuable. And then this time period between crimes eventually gets shorter and shorter, and eventually Breitweiser and Anne-Catherine Kleinklaus's girlfriend reach a stealing pace literally unheard of in the annals of art crime. Uh, for seven years, once they really hit their stride, for Seven years from the mid-1990s to the early 2000s, they averaged one theft every 12 days, which is hard to get your head around. One art theft every 12 days for seven years. So they'd take these drives, and, and I think as you described, within a day's drive, there are all the several countries and just dozens and dozens of museums. Um, they'd take a drive and, okay, we're going to go here and, and hit a place and I forget some of the examples where they would hit it multiple times, take multiple objects, come back again and again, and nobody seems to notice. Can you share a couple of those examples with us? So, yeah, we got a couple of things to talk about here. So one is what, you know, why, why he didn't get caught. And let's push that aside for a second. Like, how are you able to steal? Like, every single one of Breitweiser's crimes were during the day, during opening hours. The way he got into a museum was the way we all get into a museum. He bought a ticket only in cash, however, never a credit card, and walked in the front. And he would sometimes steal. When people were in a gallery, like listening to those uh, recordings where you can learn about the paintings, sometimes even when there was a guard in the room, and when I, I mentioned earlier that I went to a few museums with Breitweiser, and he pointed out many things. I have pictures of walking through a museum with Breitweiser, and like um, the guard in the room is staring at her cell phone, another time guards from two adjacent rooms are just chit-chatting with each other in the doorway. 
if you'd allow me just a second, I did most of my intense interviews with the art thief, with Breitweiser, in these little hotel rooms that I would rent. He's sort of known in the area of France where he is. He wanted to go someplace anonymous. And, and hotels in a lot of Europe are like the size of a walk-in closet. They're tiny. There'd be one chair. Breitweiser would sit in it. I'd sit in the luggage rack usually, and we'd have this tiny desk between us. And Breitweiser, who is extremely knowledgeable about art, I would, he would make a lot of references to artists that I hadn't heard of. So I would open up my laptop computer sometimes and take a few notes and then close the computer and push it aside. And then we'd have this conversation. And usually I'm just looking at someone in the eye, occasionally taking a few notes, but mostly letting my recorder pick up the conversation. And I'm asking him in this little hotel, I'm saying, I don't really understand how you're able to steal when there's guards in a room or other people. And in the middle of this line of questioning, he stops the conversation and he says to me, uh, well, Mike, did you see what I just did? And I'm looking, I look up at him. I might have been taking a quick note. And I'm like looking around my tiny hotel room. I mean, tiny. There's, no, there's nothing I would miss. And I said to him, no, I don't know what you're talking about, Stefan. I don't see what you just did. And he stood up, turned around, and at the small of his back was my laptop computer. <laughs> I must have lowered my eyes for like five seconds to take a note. He took the computer, put it at the small of his back, sat back down again as if without changing his posture that he had before. And I just didn't notice. I told you before that he was really had this genius ability to sort of read the psychological limits of human observation. And, you know, if there was a Christmas tree suddenly in my room, I would have noticed it. But you often don't notice the absence of something. And after he showed me how he could steal my computer, literally right from under my nose, I had this visceral understanding of his skills as a thief. Yeah, he also had a, a unique ability to figure out uh, where cameras, uh, what, what the range was of a camera and where, it, where there were blind spots. I mean, it's sort of like, again, he had like six or seven of these almost superpower-ish abilities. I mean, when I walked through a museum with him, he would sh- show me every camera, and then he would just he would walk through the room at this weird diagonal and he'd be like, I'm right at the edge of the camera's limit. If they play every uh, camera back and I walked out of the museum, I would not be seen. And it's sort of amazing because he would take something from a room, put it at the small of his back, walk through sometimes 10 or 12 galleries to get to the exit and avoid cameras every time, dozens of times in a row and just had this ability to sort of sense all this. I'm telling you, George, I would not make it through one crime without getting caught, but I was, you know, I'm just not, I'm just not built that way, but I was, you know, mighty, I don't want to say the word impressed because this is a guy who's sort of like, you know, we're all the victims just because he wasn't violent doesn't mean that he wasn't, he was basically a cancer on society. We all yeah. get to see amazing works in a museum. So I can't say that I'm impressed, but I got to say that what he did was so unprecedented that I it was like catnip for a journalist. You know, I yeah, you can't help but be impressed. We're, we're talking with Michael exactly. Finkel about his new book, The Art Thief. We're going to take a break and come back and, and get into some uh, specific crimes that were committed and then, you know, how he got into some trouble with the law. 